my dear brothers and sisters understand this everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to anger for human anger does not accomplish god's righteousness therefore ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror for he looks at himself goes away and immediately forgets what kind of person he was but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer who works this person will be blessed in what he does if anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue his religion is useless and he deceives himself pure and undefiled religion before god the father is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world Well, good morning. Are y'all thankful for Megan Preston? We are so blessed. They are such an answer to prayer for, for us. Good to be with you. Y'all have a good Thanksgiving? Oh, lie to me if you didn't. You know, just, oh yeah, we did. It was wonderful. Fought the whole time. Uh, June 4th, 1783, a large crowd gathered at a small village outside Paris all eyes fixed on this unique spectacle. They watched as this huge taffeta balloon, about 33 feet in diameter, as large as, as some of the um, Macy's Day balloons, filled with hot air, began to rise from its place, was released from its moorings, and rose 600 feet into the air. The first balloon flight, I mean, the, the first step toward human flight. The crowd erupted in, um, in, in just overwhelmed, thunderous applause, thrilled by what they were seeing as this, as this balloon drifted off into the distance. Several miles away, unsuspecting farmers caught the UFO in their sight, <laughs> were not quite so certain about being thrilled by what they saw, especially as it came closer and closer and closer and landed in their fields, fortunately for them, not before time, not before they had time to arm themselves with pitchforks. So as soon as it landed, they tore it completely to pieces, reminding us again of kind of the principle of change. You know, even the best of changes can seem foreign and threatening. So it is today we talk about change. If you want to know kind of the progression of thoughts, a couple of months ago we talked about inviting your friends. And then now we're talking about you've led your friend to Christ. How do you help them walk with Christ? What are the tests that they're going to face? They're tests that we all face. Your friend says, I've come to Christ, now what do I expect? If you say every day is going to be a day in the sunshine, 
That's a good sales job, but it's a lie, right? You say, no, you need to be prepared for the test of trials and temptation. And today, transformation. Everybody wants to change. But can we change? Now, the good news is God promises to change us. He wants to change us. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 36, 26. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Isn't that great? 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. Now, for some of you, that's not that big of a deal because you're like really nice people by nature. But for those of us who aren't nice people, this is really good news. God wants to make us new. He wants to give us new joy and new hope and new relationships, new purpose, new hope. Did I say that already? For the future. But the challenge is, do we get stuck? And what happens when we do? Psychiatrist Robert Coles was addressing a graduate class of students at Harvard University one time, and he referred to a conversation that he was having with another, what he called, renowned psychiatrist. And he said this man had confided in him that for the last 15 years, he had been counseling a man who came in, and he said he is just as angry and spiteful and mean and self-centered today as he was the day that he first walked into my office 15 years ago. He said, the only difference now is that now he knows why he's mean and angry, but it hasn't changed him. Coles looked at his class and said, could we conclude that what this man needed wasn't just information, but transformation? But is transformation possible? for human beings. Isn't that the question we ask sometimes is, can I really change? You get stuck in some area of your life and think, am I always going to be like this? Am I always going to be stuck? Is real change possible? Remember Newton's first law of motion, everything wants to continue in in the same state unless it's acted upon by some outside force. Now the good news is there is an outside force that acts on us, and that is the the love of Christ, the power of God, if we want to change. James chapter 1. James shares with us three keys for how God changes us by his power to make us a new creation. Three keys and a couple of enemies to change. Verse, Verse 19, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, Understand this, everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. The first step if we want to change is that we have to be quick to listen and slow to become angry. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the confidence that we have knowing that your word is living and active. There your Holy Spirit speaks to us through your word that you have prepared us for what you want to say today, that there's work that you want to do in us. God, I pray that you would take our hearts that are stone-like and make them like yours. Your servants are listening. Please speak. Through Christ we pray. Amen. 
Transformation begins when we are willing to listen to the truth of God. Jesus says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But the problem is we get angry and I understand why we get angry. There's that little farmer with a pitchfork inside each one of us that wants to attack everybody who wants to bring about change or even when God wants to bring about change. Years ago I had a leadership coach that was talking to me about the stages of change. You're probably familiar. The first stage is unconscious incompetence. You're incompetent but not aware of it. Something's wrong not aware of it. And then there's conscious incompetence. Now you're aware of how something's wrong. And then there's conscious competence. You're working on it consciously. And then there's unconscious incompetence. Now you're dribbling the basketball without looking at the basketball and not even thinking about not looking because you've so disciplined yourself in that way. Now we see where anger fits in that all through, the, all through the process of change. But especially at the beginning, moving from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. You can walk around all day with your zipper down. Does it bother you? No, not until you become conscious of it. Then all of a sudden it's like, oh. I love playing golf with my dad. I, I love playing golf with my dad because he's my dad. Um, my dad's a better golfer, knows golf better than I do. Um, I'm a hacker. Anybody who's ever played with me knows that I'm proficient at slicing the ball into the woods. And so by about the fifth, the other thing about my dad is that he's a, he is a coach at heart. He wants to help. He feels my pain. And so you ever, have you ever spent time with people who are helpers and you just don't want them to, so it's like, please, you can hold back your help if you want a little bit. Anyway, so my dad, by about the fifth hole, by about the fifth green, I'm sorry, tee box, usually my dad is like, you know, I could help you with that slice. And if I were teachable, if I were humble, I would react by saying, dad, thank you very much. Please instruct me in the ways of higher golf, you know, but anybody who's ever seen me play golf knows that the anger of Brett doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God in my golf game. And, and so it's just like, Dad, really, I just want to play golf. How do you react when people, when God points out your unconscious unrighteousness and now all of a sudden it's exposed? Does it make you angry? Or do you listen? Proverbs twelve fifteen says, a fool's way is right in his own eyes. Just let me slice into the woods, Dad. But whoever listens to counsel is wise. Fools get angry because they don't want to be coached. They don't want to get correction. So the first challenge to change is when God exposes our unconscious unrighteousness, do we listen? Moses is a good illustration of this. Moses has been called by God to lead the people of Israel. He's done the great miracles of the plagues. He's led the people across the Red Sea on dry ground. The people of Israel are like two or three million strong at this point. Moses has been leading them for a bit, but they're frustrated because Moses is the only one who's adjudicating the decisions and, you know, making the judgment, doing, he's the only judge. And, and, and the work isn't getting done. People are frustrated and Moses is worn out. So one day, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, shows up at the office, shows up and gets in his business. Moses, he says, two questions. What are you doing and why are you doing it this way? Now, 
I realize objectively, dispassionately, we can listen to that story. We can look at Moses' story and think, well, of course Moses would listen. Why wouldn't he listen? Put yourself in Moses' shoes. Moses is called by God to do this. I mean, wouldn't it be really tempting to say, you know, Jethro, when was the last time God called you to do something like that? When was the last time you led a business with two million employees? You know, when was the last time God used you to do these great miracles? You know, and Jethro, when I think of you, all I can think of is that weird guy on Beverly Hillbillies. I mean, you have funny names. You know, who can take a Jethro? Guy likes Jethro seriously. Thank you. Three of us understand what we're talking about there with that, showing my age. Um, and, you know, and, and, here, and here's the thing. <laughs> if you're running your business, it's one thing. There are a lot of people that you're open to kind of speaking into you. But do you want your father-in-law showing up at the office and telling you what to do? But Moses listens. And to his credit, he reorganizes, he delegates to capable, other capable judges, and then he says, I will only take the most difficult cases, you all handle the rest. And the Bible says the people were pleased, and the work got easier for Moses. Because when God gave him truth through his father-in-law, he listened, rather than getting angry. Everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry because the anger, human anger doesn't accomplish God's righteousness. The first enemy of change is human anger. Any areas of your life where you're not teachable or there are people that you're not teachable with makes you angry. You're deeply hurt. God says forgive. I don't want to forgive. You are suffering. One of the ways that God grows us all is through suffering. How do you respond? God, I want to learn. Or, God, if you really loved me, you'd answer that prayer. God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't let that thing happen to the person that I love so much. Old Testament, the New Testament, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Don't lay up your treasures here on earth where things destroy and get it stolen. Lay up your, for yourself treasures in heaven. Old Testament standards, 10%. New Testament standards says be generous. Does that make you angry? You know, 2% of Christians tithe. 2% of Christians with their first, give their first 10% to God. That tells me that there's a large percentage of Christians when God says, seek first the kingdom with your finances, that get angry at God rather than being teachable. When God challenges you on what you believe in politics, you know, politics simply is the governing of people. If there's one thing that God is good at, it is the governing of people. When God challenges you in your part, do you listen or does it make you angry? First step to change is listening to God, being quick to listen to his truth. The second is to humbly receive it. Verse 21 Ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Transformation began, demands new thinking. Not only being open to the word, that's where it begins, but then receiving it where we need to receive it. 
The way that we act is determined by the way that we think. I like to use these concentric circles to help think this through. I mean, when I think of our behavior, I, I often think in terms of these concentric circles. The outer circle is behavior, how you act, what you do. The next circle is attitudes. What are your priorities? What are your values? The next circle that determines your behavior, not just your your beliefs then determine what are your priorities? What are your attitudes? Your beliefs are what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what's loving and not loving. Beliefs that are determined by worldview. And the question is, is your worldview a biblical worldview that is determined by what the Bible says, or it's determined by the world, a secular worldview, or some combination? The most popular thing for all of us, we, we all do it, is we try to combine a biblical worldview and a popular worldview, a secular worldview. But if we're really going to change, there ha- the change um, begins in our thinking. Notice Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, your whole self, worldview to behavior, holy and pleasing God. This is your true worship. Do do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, worldview, beliefs, attitudes, so that you may be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect behavior, will, actions of God. Change begins with the change of mind as well as behavior. Receiving God's words to know the truth and apply the truth in every area of our life where truth is not being applied. So, you want to change in your anxiety? Receive what God's word says about anxiety and apply it to your life. Romans, or Philippians 4 talks about if you're anxious, pray with thanksgiving. Um, that's my daughter. Um, the, uh, if um, you want to change in your attitude toward yourself, you don't feel good about yourself, Well, what does the Bible say? Receive what the Bible says about you and apply that to your life. You want to change in your finances? What does the Bible say about finances? Apply it to your life. You want to change in your marriage? What does the Bible say about marriage? Husbands, love your wife. As like Christ loved the church, give his life for her. Wives, um, respect your your husbands. Okay, uh, receive that and apply it to your life. You want to change in any area of your life with anger or sex or career or hurts or habits, anything, receive God's word and apply it to your life. See, the reason we don't change, what keeps us stuck is we believe lies and we have to substitute those lies for God's truth. I can guarantee you that part of the reason that we are stuck in not being transferred form the way that we want is we believe a lie. Maybe it's a lie about God. Maybe it's a lie about yourself. Maybe it's a lie about the world. Maybe it's a lie about what will make you happy. Boy, if I do that thing, it's going to make me happy. What will make you free? And you have to take God's truth and apply it to that area of your life. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14 says, then we will no longer be little children. See, that's the goal, to grow up tossed by waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. Do you hear what that's saying? God's saying one sign of spiritual maturity is you can't be tossed about by deceitful people who make good sound bad and bad sound good and love sound like it's hate and hate sound like it's love. Evil sound like it's um, 
godly and godly sound like it's wrong. Jesus, God says, I don't want you to be baby believers. Baby believers are easily persuaded by clever salespeople in the world. Baby believers are people who 10 years ago, 15 years ago, believed, had one set of morality because that's what the Bible says. But now you're tossed about and you have a different set of beliefs. Or you're wondering, are those things of the Bible that I used to believe about the Bible really true? Why? Not because the Bible has changed, not because the, the world, not because we're a more moral world, but simply because there are deceitful, clever salespeople in the news, in Hollywood, in education, who are clever at telling lies. He goes on to say, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Why does truth matter? James says it in verse 21, humbly receive the implanted word, the truth, which is able to save your souls. Truth saves from the damage of Satan's lies, of believing satanic lies. But we have to receive the truth in humility. And that's the, ch that's the challenge. The second enemy of change, James, James is really clear, it's pride. Humbly receive the word implanted in you, he says. Now, pride is this tricky thing because we tend not to see it in ourselves. But it's so destructive. Uh, James says, I was reading it devotionally the other day, James 3, 14. Don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Pride makes us feel superior to the truth of God so we don't have to listen to it. But again, the danger about pride is that we don't see it in ourselves, right? We can see, <laughs> um, it's not funny, but we can see it. When I, I can always tell that I'm proud when I get really sensitive to seeing pride in other people. Have you ever noticed that? The most humble people, those of you who know Ron Ferguson, Ron Ferguson never bothered by proud people. I mean, probably sometimes he was, but why? Because he's, he's so humble. Pride is so difficult because we don't see it in ourselves. Remember that old song, No, You Don't? Well, some of us, Mary and I will remember this song. It's a country song, it's an old song. Um, remember, oh Lord, it's hard to be humble. When you're perfect in, when you're perfect in every way, right? I mean, it's a, that's like a song. So it's funny because it's so contradictory. You know, if you think you're perfect in every way, you're not humble. You know, and so you're not perfect either. But that's what pride does. Pride says, "Wait, it's really hard for me to be so humble because I'm so perfect all the time." In every, in every way, that's right. It's, it's a preacher's hymn, actually, that we all ought to sing. But, um, but the problem is that pride makes us say, I'm better than God. I'm, I'm better than other people. I don't need to listen to other people. And that's why we need so much to read God's word. Somebody said, um, I was listening to a really wise woman. Um, Hildebrand was her name. Her husband his passed away a long time ago, was credited for being like the first opponent of Hitler. But um, she said, she's in her 90s now, she said, what's the most appropriate 
posture for prayer. I'm sorry, the most appropriate posture for reading the Bible, she said, on our knees. In humility. That's what James is saying. In pride, we don't listen to God. Paul, Paul, Paul shoo, John Bunyan wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Never read it, beautiful title. Um, but they say in, his, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the cover of his Bible, inside cover of his Bible, he wrote these words, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Either pride keeps us from Scripture and listening to Scripture or, or Scripture will keep us from pride. Humble yourself before the Lord, James would say in another place, and he will exalt you. That's why the key here is accountability. I don't see my pride in myself. You all, if I'm really honest, you all probably see my pride more clearly than I do. I know my wife does. And that's why we need people who love us, who are close to us, who we will listen to, godly people. Be quick to listen, not to be angry. Be humble to receive, not proud, get accountable. And then finally, be ready to take action. Verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Be doers of the word. Be ready to take action. Let's go back to those concentric circles. How do we change? Do we change from the outside in or the inside out? The reality is we have to change all at the same time. What's tricky about this is what's easier to change, your beliefs or your behavior. See, it's easier to change beliefs than behavior. So what people tend to do is if you don't want to change, if you find it really difficult to change the behavior, well, you just change your beliefs. That's why the United States believes, that's why our morals have changed in the last 15 years. It's not because we're morally superior people or all of a sudden we've discovered greater truth in the scripture that we didn't understand for the last 2,000 years. It's because there are, there are people that don't want to change their behavior and they've had, they've had clever propagandists to convince others, you need to change your beliefs as well. But if we really want to change, how do you change? One of the, ch the other challenge that we have in our generation is one of the great fears is being inauthentic. Everybody wants to be genuine. That's a good thing. But the idea of being authentic is I've got to be true to myself. And what people mean by that is not I've got to be true to my beliefs, but I have to be true to my emotions, to my feelings. What does my inner self say? But here's the deal. Hypocrisy. Hear me on this and think about this. What's hypocrisy? Once, imagine your behaviors and your beliefs, your behaviors and your attitudes are in conflict. That's called cognitive dissonance. Something has to change so they cannot be dissonant but in harmony. It's easier to change beliefs than behavior. So people often will change their beliefs. But here's the deal. It is not hypocritical to act contrary to what you believe. Inauthenticity is not denying your feelings to live consistently with what you believe, what you know to be true, what you know, worldview, reality. Inauthenticity is living contrary um, hypocrisy is living contrary to what you believe, not contrary to what you feel. I think, I don't know if I just said that in a really confusing way. 
I did, it was confusing, thank you. Okay, let me say it one more time. Um, it is not inconsistent to live contrary to what you feel. It is inconsistent to act contrary to what you believe. Hypocrisy is not acting in, oppo in opposition to your feelings. Hypocrisy is acting contrary to what you know to be true. So if we're going to change, it's why people in 12 steps say, fake it till you make it, which is really kind of a misnomer. They don't mean faking what you believe. They mean faking your emotions. If you want to change your physical condition, are you going to be true to your emotional self? You know, if I'm going to be true to my emotional self at Thanksgiving, I will eat every piece of pie that I see. <laughs> but if I'm going to be true to my integrity or what I believe to be true, I believe I want to fit into my clothes. I believe I want to have low blood pressure. Therefore, I act contrary to how I feel. And here's the, here's the promise. Here's the promise. If you act the way you want to feel, eventually you'll feel the way you act. If you have a struggle with lust and all you ever do is give in to your lust, your lust will increase. But if you act contrary to the way you feel, if you crucify the flesh, eventually you'll feel the way you act. James is going to say it in a little bit. Obedience becomes its own reward. So, again, here back to the 12 steps. In the 12 steps, fake it till you make it, they say, um, they say, act the way you want to feel. Think about that. If all you do is act the way you want to feel and you're addicted, you're always going to be addicted. Think about marriage. Um, the Righteous Brothers have become more popular recently because of the... Top Gun movies, right? You've lost that love and feeling. Whoa, whoa. That love and feeling. Welcome to Old Man Song Day at <laughs> New Life. Um, psychiatrists tell us that our bodies are actually chemically incapable of sustaining romance, romantic uh, uh, emotions for more than two years. Infatuation just does not last. So eventually, once you're married, you're going to lose the love and feeling. What do you do at that point? Well, you can say, well, I just, I married the wrong person. You know, I don't feel it anymore. I guess I just should have, because if I married the right person, I'd always feel these emotions. No. This is where you act your way, because of beliefs, into a right way of feeling. Um, look at your husband every day and think, what an idiot. You know, I mean, dirty fingernails, doesn't have a job. I could have married. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I just, I was just thinking. My, <laughs> I was talking. I was talking to my wife a couple of weeks ago, and uh, don't you dare quote me on this. This is not being recorded, right? Um, and she, <laughs> she's, and we got to talking about this guy she dated before she met me and he had like this really, really cool car and she was like, and he was drop dead gorgeous. And I was like, well, that came out awfully easy. But anyway, but so, so you're looking at your husband thinking he's not drop dead gorgeous. 
you know, man, he's just he's kind of bald and got hair coming out of his ears and whatever. What are you going to feel? You're going to feel, it's, you're going to lose the love and feeling. But what if every day you look at him and say, you know what, Lord, I thank you. And you find the good things to be thankful for. Romance is found in the pursuit. Romance is found in the pursuit. If you act the way you want to feel, eventually you feel the way you act. If you treat your spouse and see your spouse as an imbecile that is unattractive, guess what? You're going to feel like he's an imbecile who's unattractive, and maybe he is. But if you pursue him, if you love him, if you're thankful for the good gift that God has given you, eventually you'll feel the way you act. That's how this transformation works. Okay? We, from inside out, outside in. Then, therefore, we need to clean house. Verse 22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Because if anybody, if any of you repeats that thing that I told about my wife, I mean, it's just like I could be in big trouble. Um, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like some, just because it's not in the notes, I didn't get permission from her. Anyway, I'm going to obsess on that the whole rest of the sermon. Uh, he is someone, he's like somebody who's looking at his own face in a mirror. For if he looks at himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of person he was, why would you do that? But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom, Jesus brings freedom. The law of God, obedience to Jesus brings freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The world's lying about that. That's one of the huge lies of the world. If you follow the Bible, you're not going to be free. If you follow the Bible, you're, it's going to keep you from being, enjoying life. No. And perseveres in it and is not a forgetful here, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. Obedience is its own reward. Isn't that wonderful? The language that James uses earlier is ridding yourself of all moral filth. Fifty times in the New Testament, I think I read that um, God says rid yourself. Clean house. You look in the mirror, you need to clean up. How do you need to clean house? Experts say if you want to change, don't try, it'll be overwhelming if you try to change a hundred things at once. Try one thing at a time. Focus on one thing at a time. You want a healthy body? What needs to be cleaned out? It's a horrible time to make this application, isn't it? Thanksgiving weekend. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, we have like four pies at home. I can clean out those four pies. But you know, we'll clean. But you, know you need to go home. And what, what unhealthy stuff do you need to clean out? Clean house. How do you need to clean house with your mind so you, can have an so you can have a healthy mind? Anything going in the eye gate or the ear gate that's making you unhealthy? What, what's the next step? Look there. Any of you need to clean house with your schedule? If God were to be here right now and say to you, you're overscheduled. You have too many priorities. Just because somebody else says it's important doesn't mean it's important clean house in your schedule, how many of you would feel relieved? What action do you need to take? Anyone have any unhealthy emotions you don't want to take into next year? Maybe you're carrying around anger or jealousy, hurt, fear. Boy, I tell you, I have to constantly clean house with fear. The way they do that is confession. Augustine said, confession of bad works is the beginning of good works. That's good. Now, when God starts to change us, James concludes by saying, you're going to see changes in three clear 
areas. First, he's going to change your words. Verse 26. If anybody thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Later on, he says in chapter 3, we all stumble in many ways. If anybody does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able also to control his whole body. Maybe the way that God wants to begin to change us is with our words. You know, there are leading economic indicators. Words tend to be leading spiritual indicators. What action could you take to change your words? Maybe speak more slowly and listen more readily. Maybe um, just to say fewer words, where words are many, sin is not absent, Ecclesiastes says. Second area of changes in our service, verse 27 Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Now, sometimes people, this is not a spiritual checklist. Some people are like, I cared for an orphan this week. I am a really spiritual, religious person that God admires. That's not the point. It's not a spiritual checklist. The point is, the principle is that the most vulnerable people in ancient times were orphans and widows. If you served an orphan or a widow, they could not pay you back. There was no way for you to get something back from them. The principle here is this. When was the last time you served and you got no reward for it? When was the last time you served and nobody appreciated it? And whoever you helped, however you helped... Maybe it was done in silence. Maybe it was done in, 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 in private in a way that nobody's going to say thank you or appreciate you. Um, nobody's going to repay you. That person can't repay you. When, here's the question then for this. What does it look like this week for you to serve just simply for the sake of serving? Because your reward's in heaven. The final thing then is he'll change your walk. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. What's it look like for you to walk in integrity? Where are you stained by the world's entertainment or rationalizations? Now the question is, what will you do? Soren Kierkegaard was a 19th century um, theologian credited for a classic parable of duck church. One Sunday morning, the ducks in the community all assembled as they, as they did every Sunday, as was their tradition. They all waddled into the church building and down, they waddled down the church aisle and they waddled into their church pews where they perched themselves on the pew. Then the duck pastor waddled onto the podium, no doubt wearing duck boots, <laughs> Uh, and he opened his duck Bible on the duck pulpit. I really thought that was a really clever thing, but I knew it wasn't a clever thing, but I still did it. I said, should you do this? Should you? No, I should. Anyway. So he begins to preach to the, his duck sermon. Ducks, he says, God has given you wings. With your wings, you can fly like eagles. Ducks, with these wings, there's no place you cannot go. No task you cannot accomplish for God. No pen can contain you. No fence can confine you. With these wings, you can soar on new heights. 
my fellow ducks, let us mount up on wings. We can fly. Go now. Fly. And with that, the whole duck church erupted in applause. And every duck after the service agreed. This had to be the most powerful, compelling sermon the duck pastor had ever preached. Kierkegaard noted, then they left the building. All of them waddled all the way home. Is real change possible? Yeah. But we have to want to change. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. That person will be blessed in what he does. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to be doers of the word as you're leading us. To really believe that you would transform our lowly bodies into people who can fly. God, we confess to you that little farmer with the pitchfork inside each one of us that would attack the changes that you would make inside. Um, we confess to you that it's easier to talk about on Sunday than it is to do on Monday. And so we throw ourselves at your mercy. Lord, would you change us like a gentle shepherd? Take our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh. For Christ we pray. Amen.